The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, reading the fourth verse. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Now that, you remember, comes as a part of the great statement which the Apostle makes here in verses 4, 5, and 6 in this fourth chapter of the Epistle to the Ephesians. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are looking at this because here the Apostle is giving these Ephesians help and instruction in this great and important matter of endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have been created anew in Christ Jesus unto good works which we should walk in them. And the first good work that the Apostle reminds us of is this importance of uh, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We do that because it is God's great purpose to unite all things together in Christ, and he's already started doing so. He has done so in the church. So the church, the visible church, is uh, to be uh, an indication to the world of God's great final purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we must endeavor thus to keep this unity of the Spirit. It's not merely something for our own sakes. It is because God through the church is going to show to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places his own manifold wisdom. Well, now then. We have seen that uh, here the Apostle is giving us this help and this aid. And his point is, of course, that uh, the union is already there. It isn't something that we create, it's God who's created it through the Holy Spirit. And we see that in these three verses, he groups it round the three persons of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Spirit, the Son, the Lord, and God the Father, who is over all and through all, and in us all. Now, in other words, the unity that belongs to the church, the life of the church, is the same as the unity that does exist in the blessed Holy Trinity, the three in one and the one in three. And we are at the moment in this fourth verse looking at the unity as it is displayed in the church in the work of the Holy Spirit. One body. We've already dealt with it. The church is like the human frame, organic unity. Then, secondly, one spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is one. There is only one Holy Spirit over and against the many, many evil spirits. But one Holy Spirit. And uh, we have already seen how his work uh, of necessity and inevitably produces unity. When we're all convicted of sin, we're all one. 
When we all realize that together we have come short of the glory of God, there are no divisions and distinctions. When we all realize that we can do nothing about our own salvation if we live to be a thousand and more, again we are all one in helplessness. And we are one born again of the same spirit. We are given the same life. We are partakers together of the same divine nature. Everything that the Holy Spirit does to us makes us one. And that is the point which the Apostle is here arguing. And last Sunday morning, we saw how in his work in revivals, the Holy Spirit again brings out this wonderful element of unity. Every revival that the church has ever known has been a kind of return to the day of Pentecost. doesn't matter in which country a revival takes place whether in America or England, whether in the Congo, whether in the Hebrides, it doesn't matter where. It's the same thing. Why? Well, because it's the same spirit. There is only one spirit. And what he does always bears the mark of his own blessed person. One body and one spirit. And now we come to the third aspect uh, which the Apostle emphasizes in connection with the work of the Spirit. Even, he says, as ye are called, in one hope of your calling. Now then, uh, what is the meaning of this? Well, perhaps the best way to approach this is to ask a question. And here now we are going to do something that is of great value always in any biblical reading or study. The whole secret of enjoying the study of the Bible, I sometimes think, is to discover the art of asking questions. In other words, don't just take things for granted as they come, but when you come across something, stop for a moment and ask a question. Now, here is an instance of that. Listen to the apostle, he says there is one body. And one spirit. Well, we can understand that sequence, can't we? There is one body. Well, very well, what is the life of the body? Uh, what is the power that keeps the body alive and enables it to act? Well, it's obviously the one spirit. So we see that he goes naturally from one body to one spirit. But then he says, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, now, why did he say that next? That's the question to ask. What made him think of this? Why should this be the thing that he adds to the one body and the one spirit? Now, it's as you ask questions like that that you'll discover the biblical doctrines. And you'll see that there is a reason for all these things. The apostle didn't put this down haphazardly. He didn't put it down accidentally. It wasn't the first thing that happened to come to his mind. No, no, there is a logical sequence. There is an inevitable connection. Now then, why this next? Well, I think that there are two reasons uh, which uh, make it inevitable that this should be the third thing he mentions. Here is the first. Why uh, has the Holy Spirit done in us who are Christians that which he has done. Why has he called us effectually? You remember we've seen in the first verse that we are to walk worthy of the calling wherewith we are called. 
While we were dead in trespasses and sins, we were called by the Holy Spirit. But why did he call us? What's his object? Why did he convict us of sin? Why did he enable us to see the merit of Jesus' blood? Why did he give us new life? Why did he call us out to the world? Why did he baptize us into the body of Christ? What's it all for? What's the body for? What's the church for? Is it an end in itself? Has God simply formed the church and is he going to stop at that? What's the reason at the back of it all? Well, now, the moment you see you ask those questions, you see the answer. The answer is that all these things have taken place merely as a preparation for something that is yet to take place. This is a stage in a great process. This is but a kind of interim activity leading on to a final activity. What's happening? What is the church? Ah, as we shall see, the church is just this body that uh, God, uh, through Christ and by the Holy Spirit, is calling out of mankind in order to form a new humanity, a new people for himself, that he is finally going to perfect and to put to dwell in a renovated world, in a world that shall be glorified and free from all sin. It's all leading up to that ultimate glory, that final appearance of Christ and the setting up of his eternal kingdom. Very well. So you see that it follows naturally One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling. The body is being prepared for a great day that is yet to come. Now there's one reason. But there is surely a second reason why the apostle introduces this at this point also. Now we've been looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. But we didn't deal with it exhaustively. We have dealt with the work of the Holy Spirit in preparing us for incorporation into the body. We have seen his special work in revival. But he has another special work. And this is more personal. And the apostle has already dealt with this in a sense in the first chapter. Do you remember how he put it in verses 13 and 14 of the first chapter? He says, in whom ye also trusted after that he heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. After, remember, they'd heard the word and the gospel, in whom also after that he believed or having believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now then, here we've been looking at the doctrine of the work of the Spirit. And we remember that this final work of the Spirit, in a sense, is this work that he does as a seal and as an earnest. He doesn't merely prepare us for becoming Christians. He has to do that. All that preliminary work is essential. Yes, but he doesn't stop at that. Having made us Christians, having put us into the body of Christ, he seals us, and then he acts as an earnest. But of what? What's the purpose of the sealing? Uh, What's the purpose of the earnest? 
Well, as we saw when we were considering those verses, the whole object of the sealing and the earnest is with respect to this purchased possession of which he speaks. In other words, the stamp is put upon us that we belong to him, that we are his children, that we are inheritors of a great inheritance that is coming. That's the seal. What is the earnest? Oh, well, the earnest is a foretaste of the inheritance. It's uh, the first fruits. The earnest is that installment which is given me here and now as a guarantee that I'm going to have it all. I haven't yet received the fullness of my inheritance, but I've been given a foretaste. I've been given an installment. I've tasted of the first fruits. The great harvest is yet to be reaped. Yes, but the fact that I've got this is a guarantee that I'm going to get that. So now you see the very doctrine of the Holy Spirit itself. The moment we think of the sealing and the moment we think of the earnest makes us think of this purchased possession, this marvelous thing that God is preparing and holding for them that love him. Very well, says Paul, there is one body, there is one spirit. Ah, even as ye are called in, one hope of your calling. You see the inevitable connection. And you see, I trust and I hope at the same time, the marvel and the wonder of the scriptures the way in which there is a scheme and a plan. You don't, as Christians, hold a number of odd, unrelated ideas in your mind. There is a plan of salvation. There is a scheme of redemption. And there are steps and stages, and they follow one to the next in a logical inevitability. And here is an example of that. Very well, then, I argue that any true consideration of the work of the Holy Spirit of necessity, must lead us to a consideration of this blessed, glorious hope that lies ahead of every true Christian. Now, again, we find that the Apostle has already been dealing with this in a sense. Do you remember how in that very first chapter he tells these Ephesians that he is praying for them and he prays that God may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Why? Well, for this reason. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Why? That ye may know what is the hope of his calling. That you may know the hope to which he's called you. That you may know and realize and appreciate and understand this tremendous object which God has at the back of this great plan of redemption. The hope of his calling. And then the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then the exceeding greatness of his power to us that believe. Well now there he was praying for it in general. But here he deals with it and adverts to it. Specifically in connection with this principle of unity. Now, says the apostle, I want you with all, long, with all lowliness and meekness, with all long-suffering and forbearing one another in love to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Well, amongst other reasons, because you are called to one hope of your calling. There is nothing 
that so promotes unity and guards it and keeps it as our realization together of the blessed hope that lies ahead of us. Now let me show you that. Let me first of all put this to you negatively. It is because we fail to keep our eye on the hope of our calling that there are so many divisions and distinctions and misunderstandings. So I would put it like this as a principle. We must not dwell on what we were called from. We must rather dwell on what we are called to. But you see, the tendency is, isn't it, is to be dwelling ever always on that from which we have been called and looking back at it and talking about it. And that of necessity causes divisions and distinctions. Isn't the hand of the enemy and the adversary of our souls and of the church to be seen very clearly at this point? He can't prevent our becoming Christians, but he can cause a good deal of damage afterwards. And one of his ways is to make us look back. And to look back at it, that from which we were called, rather than forward to that to which we are called. And you see, the moment you look back, this is what you get. Look at the early church. Some of them had been Jews, some had been Gentiles, some of them barbarians, others Scythians. Some were bond, some were free, some were male, some were female. And the moment you see they look back, they're reminded of divisions and distinction. And if those things are perpetuated in the present and in the life of the church, you of necessity have distinctions and divisions. Now, that is, I want to suggest, one of the most prolific causes of division. I suggest that it is very wrong to be looking back in this way, rather than to be looking forward. Because one of the effects it has inevitably is this. That uh, one conversion is uh, different from another conversion. And this is something you'll often find in meetings when people give their experiences or give their testimonies, as it's called. Of necessity, they start with what they were. And already, I say, you are sowing the seeds of trouble. You are going back to what they were before the grace of God had come and had made them one. You are emphasizing something that's been abolished, and thereby you are introducing a distinction and a division. I was a Jew, I was a Gentile, I was in this profession, I was in that profession. I had done this, I had done that. And at once there are endless divisions. May I put this to you in the form of a, an incident that I once witnessed and heard myself, and which I think will help to fix it in your minds. I was engaged with other people in an open-air meeting. 
I had not originated the meeting, but I was taking part in it with others. And I happened to be in charge of it on this occasion. And I allowed them to do what they'd always done, and this is what happened. One man stepped forward into the ring, and uh, he gave his experience, his story, his conversion. He told us what a terrible man he'd been and the things he'd done, and so on, and how in spite of that the grace of God had laid hold upon him and had converted him. Then the next man stepped forward, an older man, a man who'd been converted some 10 or 15 years before the first speaker. And this is literally how he spoke. He said, well, you've heard my brother telling you about his conversion and about the life of sin out of which he was converted. He said, he doesn't know what sin is. I'll tell you what sin is. And then he began to describe his life. And it seemed to me that it was becoming a competition in sin and almost a competition in crime. The second man, alas, wasn't conscious of it, but what he was really doing was to boast of his sinfulness. He was drawing a distinction between his sin and the sin of the other. And his conversion was therefore a greater conversion than the conversion of the other. But you see, that's all wrong. It's unscriptural. All conversions are identical. There is no difference. It takes the grace and the power of Almighty God to save a single soul. It doesn't matter whether you were Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, barbarian or Scythian, bond nor free. What you were is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. But you see, we are constantly perpetuating these things, aren't we? And that is why some people are more important in the church than others. Because of what they were by nature. Because of their social position or their wealth or their ability or something else, something that belongs to the natural men. That's brought into the church and there are divisions. And it is all, you see, because we persist in forgetting that we are not to look at what we were saved from, but what we are saved to. It's because men and women, instead of looking forward to the hope of their calling, are looking back to the pit from which they were hewn, that the whole trouble arises. And thus these divisions exist in the church, and they're sinful, and there is nothing to be said for them. May I round off this particular section by telling you once more that famous story, which I think puts it all so perfectly, of what happened in the case of Philip Henry, the father of the commentator Matthew Henry. You remember the young Philip Henry? fell in love with a girl who belonged to what is called a higher class of society than himself. And she fell in love with him, and they wanted to get married. So the young lady began to speak to her parents about this, and they didn't like it. They didn't know this man, Philip Henry. They didn't know his family, and they turned on her at last, and they said, but where has he come from? Who is this Philip Henry? Where has he come from? And she, good Christian as she was, 
spoke like this of Philip Henry, fine Christian as he was. She says, I don't know where he's come from, but I do know where he's going. And what else matters? Christians, I say, are to look at the hope of their calling. These other things are the result of sin and division. The world was never meant to be divided into Jew and Gentile, barbarian and Scythian, bond nor free, high or low, great and small. That's man, that's sin, that's the devil. And we must never look back at those things. We must look forward to the hope of our calling, and that is one, and that is always the same. But let me put it like this also, in the second principle. We must not only not look back and dwell upon that from which we were saved, we must not even dwell upon our conversion experiences. I mean now the actual experience of conversion. I'm no longer speaking of the life out of which you've come, but the actual event or the actual experience of conversion. Because here again, you see, is something that inevitably tends to divide us. There are some people who've had a very dramatic conversion. They may have undergone agonies of repentance and remorse. It may have lasted a long time. And at last, in some most dramatic moment, they saw the light and were saved. There, were, there are others who rarely cannot give you the exact moment, the exact time of their conversion. It was quiet, it was almost unobserved. They can't, I say, identify any particular event or moment, but what they do know is that whereas they were once dead, they're now alive. They know that they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they desire him above everything else and want to be with him and to be like him. But you see, the two types of experience are very different. And as a pastor and a minister, I can testify to the harm and the damage and the divisions and the distinctions that stressing the form of conversion experience has in the life of the church. It works in many ways. Sometimes it does great harm to the man himself who's had the dramatic conversion. He becomes proud of it. He becomes a kind of showpiece. And he's a different Christian from the others. And he tends to despise the man who isn't quite sure of the way in which it happened or when it happened. And on the other hand, this person who's had the quiet experience, he sometimes is made to think that perhaps he's not a Christian at all because his experience doesn't conform to the dramatic pattern. He's given the impression in meetings that only the dramatic is the true because the quiet people are never called forward. And so he says, well, I wonder whether I really am a Christian. Am I really in the kingdom or not? And you have divisions and distinctions, flashing experience, experiences, quiet experiences, and thus these wrong and sinful divisions and schisms enter into the life of the church. Perhaps again I can best put this by repeating something I once heard the famous John McNeil say in this connection. And I think it was very good. He was imagining a conversation 
between two of the blind men that were healed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was imagining a conversation between the blind men whose healing is recorded in the ninth chapter of John and the blind men whose healing is recorded in the eighth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Mark. You remember the differences, don't you? In the case of the men in the ninth chapter of John, our Lord spat upon some clay on the ground and he mixed it and he anointed the men's eyes with a mixture of clay and spittle and told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. In the case of the men in the eighth of Mark, he did nothing of the sort. And John McNeil was imagining these two men meeting later on and uh, having a conversation together. And he put it in his own inimitable way like this. The men in the ninth of John said to the men in the, in the eighth of Mark, he said, what did you feel like when he put on your eyes that mixture of clay and spittle? Clay and spittle, said the man in Mark 8, I, I don't know anything about clay and spittle. What, said the other man, don't you remember? Uh, well, when he spat upon the ground and he made the mixture and then put it on your eyes, uh, well, I'm asking, what did you feel? But he said, there, there was nothing put on my eyes. And on and on the conversation went, the men in the ninth of John bringing out his questions and the other men displaying ignorance. And at last, the men in the ninth of John said to the other, look here, he said, I don't think you've been healed at all. You must still be blind. If he didn't put the clay on your eyes, it's still a fact that you can't see. Quite right. In other words, said John McNeil, because they were both looking back at their experiences, Two religious denominations came into being at once, the Muddites and the Anti-Muddites. Well, quite right. But isn't that the sort of thing that is still being done? Is there not this tendency to look back? My dear friends, there's only one answer to this sort of thing, it's this. To say with the great Apostle Paul, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward. It doesn't matter what happened there. That isn't the thing that matters. I say it matters not this morning how you came into the kingdom. The vital thing is, are you in the kingdom? I don't care whether your birth was a dramatic, exciting one, or whether it was the quietest thing in the world. Thank God it doesn't matter. Nowhere are we told in the scripture that you've got to be able to give the precise moment or the precise verse or the precise preacher. No, no, these things don't matter at all. The one thing that matters is that you should be in the kingdom. But you see, there is a great tendency today to look back, isn't there? You will even find that special reunions are held of Christians who were saved in a particular campaign or in a given year, and so on. Reunions of these special, and so the church is divided. So-and-so's converts, ah yes, but what year they were divided? Special years and compartments and divisions, and all this schism is brought in, and there are others who feel that they're outside and that they somehow don't belong. My friends, this is sinful. And the cause of the sin is that we are not looking forward to the hope of our calling, but are looking back. We are not forgetting the things that are behind. 
and looking forward unto the prize and the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. But then let me give you a third principle. We must not even dwell on what we are now. We must always be looking forward. Because if we dwell on what we are now, there will still be the tendency to divide and to separate. And unless this again is something that has come into the church in the last hundred years, we now divide ourselves up into young people, middle-aged, old people, brotherhoods, sisterhoods, and all other conceivable divisions and distinctions. And why? Well, because we are persisting in looking at ourselves as we are now. Instead of looking all of us together at what we are going to be, at the hope of our calling. Of course there are these divisions now. I don't want to say that they have no significance at all, but I do say they mustn't be underlined, they mustn't be emphasized. And they never were in the early church. They were all one. It didn't matter how old you were and what's it matter now. You can have an old man who's a babe in Christ. You can have a young person who's much older spiritually. It doesn't matter, I say. This is the thing, this unity, this oneness, not these divisions which belong to nature, which belong to time, and which belong to men rather than to the spirit. Oh, again I say we must join the apostle in saying this. Not that I have already attained. He'd gone much further than most people. But he says, I haven't arrived, not as though I had already attained or were already perfect, but I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And this is surely the teaching of the whole of the New Testament. I have an increasing feeling that most of the troubles in the church are due to our failure to realize that the New Testament always is calling us to look forward. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I believe, says the Apostle in writing to the Romans, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's the comfort he gives the Christians. Listen to him writing to the Corinthians. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. If our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have an house, a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's it. We have been saved, he writes to Titus. And we look for the coming of that great Lord and our Savior. That is the great characteristic of the New Testament teaching. And John says the same. 
Beloved, now are we the sons of God. We know not yet what we shall be, but that we do know that when he shall appear, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. That's it. The whole of the New Testament is looking forward, and we in our folly are looking at the present. We are interested in hydrogen bombs and atomic bombs and what they're doing in South Africa and the Middle East, here and now, Christianity, practical politics. All right, and you divide yourselves up. One is in favor of fighting, one against fighting. One thinks you shouldn't do this and the other says you should. And the church is divided politically. Some are patent socialists, others are conservatives. And the church is divided and torn. Why? Well, we're all looking at the present and we're not looking at the hope of our calling. We have forgotten that we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. And you know the New Testament doesn't offer us very much in this world. It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who said, In the world you shall have tribulations. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul re-echoes that by saying, in this tabernacle we do groan, being burdened, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Now we see as in a glass darkly, but then face to face. Oh, how important it is that we should look at nothing except this calling to which we are called, the hope of our calling. Let's not look back anymore in any respect. Let's not spend our time looking at the present and comparing and contrasting ourselves with one another. Let's look forward to what? Well, to the one hope of our calling. And there's only one hope. There is the same hope for all, and we're all going together to the same place if we are truly Christian. There is no division and distinction there. What is it? Well, we are going forward to a life which is entirely free from sin. You see, it is sin that always divides and separates. And the whole object of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is that the works of Satan and of sin should be abolished and destroyed, and that everything should be reunited again together in him. And thank God it's coming. There is a day coming when we shall all be faultless and blameless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Oh, what a wonderful prospect. We now have the spots and the wrinkles and some of many and some of few. And we're all so different and we look at one another and there is division. But there's a day coming when there shall be no spot, no wrinkle, nor any such thing. We shall be perfect. Sin entirely finished with. There'll be no sin inside us and there'll be no temptation outside us. It'll be perfect, it'll be glory. And not only will sin be taken out of us, it'll be taken out of the whole universe, the whole cosmos. There shall be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's the thing to look forward to. And what else? Well, we shall be with him. 
we shall see him as he is. And we shall enjoy him together. And I am certain of this. That when we stand in his presence and see him as he is. We shall not be interested in anything else. We'll just take hold of one another's hands and look at him and say, isn't it marvelous? Isn't he wonderful? We'll be lost in wonder, love, and praise. There'll be no divisions and distinctions. Nobody will be interested to know whether you were once a Jew or a Gentile or a barbarian or a Scythian, bond nor free, whether you'd been born in a great family or whether you'd been born in a slum. Thank God, it'll all have gone. We'll all be looking at him and nothing else will be remembered. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Yes, and as I've been reminding you, we shall not only all see him together, but still more remarkable, we shall all be like him. Don't ask me to explain that. I believe that in some odd way our identities will be preserved, but you know, we'll all be like him. Did you notice how Paul put it there in Philippians 3? We look for this great God and Savior to come back, he says. And he's got power to change this, our vile body, or this body of our humiliation, and fashion it like unto his glorious body, according to that mighty working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. Some of us in this life are lame. Others can walk in a sprightly manner. Some of us have wonderful beauty. Others of us are ugly. Some of us have wonderful form. Others of us are shapeless. I don't care. There we shall all be like him. Even our bodies shall be like his. Like the body of his glorification. And there'll be no jealousy or envying. There'll be no despising and no turning up of the nose and contempt. Oh, God forgive us, Christian people, forever doing things like that in the realm of the church, in the body of Christ, of bringing in these old things that should be left once and forever and dividing. There it'll all have gone. And not only that, I say, in that new heavens and that new earth which he will bring in, we shall all not only be with him, but we shall be reigning with him, kings and priests, unto God forever and ever. You see, our destiny is one. That's where you're going. Our expectation is therefore one, isn't it? And even here and now we are having the same foretaste. We are taking of the same first fruits. How then can there be divisions and distinctions in the church? No, no. The way to spiritual unity, the way to safeguard, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace is to do what Paul says to the Colossians. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Set them there as you set your compass. 
As you set your camera, set your affections, keep them there, set them, keep them constantly gazing at him. Look to the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Oh, yes, says an old hymn writer. One, the object of our journey. One, the faith which never tires. One, the earnest looking forward. One, the hope our God inspires. One, the gladness of rejoicing on that far eternal shore where the one almighty Father reigns in love forevermore. And when I think of that, I'm not interested in denominations or divisions or distinctions. What are they? Oh, let's turn our backs upon them all and look at him. One, the object of our journey. We are traveling home to God in the way the fathers trod. Children of the heavenly king as he journeyed. Sweetly sing. One, the object of our journey. It's all one. Let's look at it and refuse to look in any other direction. Amen.